I think some of you know that my dad was a pastor. He's still alive. He's just retired. But uh, growing up with my dad as a pastor, you know, anything that uh, I did or anything that one of my brothers or sisters did, it seemed to always work its way into a sermon illustration. And so, you know, I I think it was really good for me in learning humility. You know, he would, he would, I would do something stupid or whatever, and he would, he would tell everybody and every eye would be on me. Uh, shrinking down into the pew, you know. Well, anyway, so when I went went to seminary and, and preaching classes, they they told us don't do that. Don't use your, don't use your wife especially, but don't use your kids either as, as sermon illustrations. But I'm no, I'm not going to use my wife. I'm going to use my daughter. I just won't give her a name. She's the middle the middle one. Anyway, when she was when she was small, she really liked to argue. And uh, we we had this one educational video game, and in this game there was there was this pirate. And the pirate had a wooden leg and a, a hook for his hand and a patch on his eye, and he had this parrot sitting on his shoulder. And as you're as you're playing this game, you know, every once in a while the uh, the parrot would go crackers. And Andrea insisted, no, that that parrot's not saying crackers; he's saying raspberries <laughs> it's still a family joke crackers versus versus raspberries you know and uh no no amount of reasoning with her could convince her that this parrot was not saying raspberries and uh you know we thought it was funny we'd kind of laugh at her you know she took that pretty personally and uh was was very insulted we we still thought it was funny, though, and it was it was kind of cute, you know. Now that she's an adult, uh, she, in her maturity, has, has conceded that, yes, in fact, that, that parrot was saying crackers, not raspberries. So it's kind of cute for a five-year-old, but, uh, you know, if she was still in a, if she was an adult still being stubborn and insisting like that, you know, it probably wouldn't be quite as cute. That kind of behavior isn't adorable in, in an adult. You know, chi- childish behavior is is just unbecoming. You know, Jesus says to be childlike, but not childish. And, um, you know, the point is that it's God's plan for us to mature spiritually. It's God's plan that we experience spiritual growth. And that's something that uh, Paul is talking about in our text today, you know, that we need to be in a constant state of progressing in our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity. Uh, today, as we read from Philippians three, twelve through 16, that's what he's talking about. And, you know, this, this text continues these themes of, of humility and, and unity from earlier in the letter. You know, where, where Paul commands us to be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord of, and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. And uh, oh, could, could you imagine what kind of church we would have? What kind of churches would be across our nation if, if everybody took that to heart? You know, this, this is an amazing passage. 
And uh, let's, let's also keep in mind what Paul has just said in the last passage that we covered last week about his own journey, about how he counts all his hard work, his accomplishments as rubbish compared to the uh, surpassing value of knowing Christ, knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's what we just sang about. You know, our hope, our reason for living is because we serve the the living, resurrected Christ, because we know him. Yes. So now Paul is continuing these thoughts as as we go on in verses uh, 12 through 16. Read with me. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any, if anything you think differently, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained, attained. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, uh, we thank you that uh, it is your plan to help us to, to grow. Lord, you, you, you walk the path with us, Lord. Lord, we want to know you. Lord, as we, as we open up your word, we pray that you would illuminate it, Lord. Open up our, our hearts to, to hear what your word has to say in Jesus' name. So Paul is describing a journey here. He's describing a journey of, of spiritual maturity. You know, it's a journey that uh, will culminate one day when Paul is in the presence of the Lord. He's not there yet. I'd like to remind us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, and 12 about maturity. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought as a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So we we all have this goal of becoming mature in the Lord. Ultimately, when we reach that destination, when we're with the Lord, uh, it's only be it's <laughs> we're only going to be mature because of Him, because we are with Him. We're in His pre- we'll be in His presence. We'll we'll see Him face to face. We'll see Him as He is. Well, the first point is that uh, Paul is saying. I haven't arrived yet. I haven't arrived yet. You know, this is honesty. This is humility. You know, he said, I haven't already obtained this, nor am I perfect. He says, like we should all say, you know, I'm, I'm still a work in progress. God is still working on me. He's just described himself in terms really of, of an ideal and uh, you know, he knows that looking back at his, at his past life uh, of, of self-effort and self-sufficiency, uh, he has no bragging rights, no room to boast. What does he say is truly important? 
again, to know Christ in the power of his, his resurrection. Let me just remind you of what he said in verses 8 through 11, because this is such an amazing passage. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So after saying that, he, I think he stops and thinks, you know, I need to, I need to clarify something here. Lest, lest anyone think I've, I've arrived at some state of perfection here, I need to clear it up. I, I've not attained that level of, of maturity that it seems like I, I just described. You know, It takes a lot of maturity to say this, a lot of maturity and, and humility to admit this. You know, If anyone begins to uh, think too highly of ourselves, we need to be like Paul and back up and, and say, you know, I, I'm not there yet. I've got a long way to go. You know, first, I think Paul is saying this for the benefit of those who, who might hear this and feel that uh, they don't measure up. You know, it, it'd be, you know, the, the thought may be, well, it's easy for Paul to say this, right? He's, he's an apostle. You know, he, he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. You know, he's, this is Paul, but this is me. You know, I, I don't think I can realistically match this this standard. So, you know, Paul is putting that fear to rest. Second, Paul needs to make sure that people realize that he's not deluding himself. You know, he knows the standard. He knows that we all fall short. And so does he. You know, he's he's guarding his heart. He's not letting pride take over. You know, we, we need to be wary of, of considering ourselves to be uh, some sort of spiritual giants. Paul says in Romans uh, 12.32, he says, For by the grace given to me, I, need, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. You know, we need to know that anything we have that's good in our spiritual life is there. We have it because of him. We have it because it was given to us. We didn't earn it. You know, any spiritual life that we have is because of the life giver. Any gain that's that's through our flesh, that, that is our, our self-efforts, like Paul says, is, is rubbish. It's garbage. We, we need to watch out for spiritual pride. One, one area that we need to be careful of in, uh, with spiritual pride is uh, pride in our expertise in scriptural knowledge. You know, we need to be aware that much of what we hold true is influenced by people we've heard, books we've read, maybe videos we've watched, maybe uh, from people we admire, maybe maybe a pastor who we, we hold in high admiration. You know, there, there are a lot of celebrity authors and, and celebrity pastors. You can go on the Internet and hear just about anything you want to hear. 
You know, we need to we need to dig into the word ourselves and let the spirit guide us. You know, the point is that that none of those celebrity pastors or authors have have gained perfection either. No Christian, no one Christian has all the answers. You know, we need to uh, press on, always seeking the, the truth in God's word. We're all flawed. We all need humility. And uh, Paul did himself, knowing that he, as we, still have a long way to go. Growing in grace and knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard said, there are in the end only two ways open to us to honesty and honorably make an admission of how far we are from the Christianity of the New Testament or to perform skilled tricks to conceal the true situation. So Paul's not arrogant. You know, he's he's uh, many times over up to this point in this book established his own humility, but he doesn't despair. You know, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, nor does he, he use his, his flaws and his sin and his imperfection as an excuse to sin. He knows where he needs to go. He knows the direction he needs to go. He knows the person to whom he needs to go. He says, I'm not there yet, but he says, I'm on the right road. Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's saying, I'm, I'm on the right track because I'm with Jesus Christ. That's the importance of knowing him, being with him. He says, I I know the direction I need to go. I know I'm heading in that direction. With everything I have, I'm seeking to know him, longing to know him better, longing to experience him, his resurrection life, his power. You know, this is not disconnected from what he says in the the first part of the chapter where he said, Christ has made me his own, and, and I'm knowing him more and more as I spend more and more time with him. You know, he's saying that, Everything I've done in the past, that's just fine. I was really proud of it, but it didn't mount to anything at all because Christ wasn't in it. And I'll say for me, if Christ isn't in it, I don't want anything to do with it. Paul continues saying, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus so straining forward, pressing on. You know, the uh, Christian life is a very active life. It's not a passive life. We can't live in the past. You know, experiences of the past, good and bad, can influence the, the way we look at things. They, they can influence the way we are, the way we think, uh, and how we decide to proceed. We had some friends who... We're dear friends. They still are. They don't live. They don't live here. They live in a, a place where we used to live. And Chris and I used to get with with this couple uh, once a week in their house, and we would we would pray together. We'd sing some songs. We'd look at the scripture. We'd fellowship. We had had really sweet times of fellowship with them. And uh, they were they were older than us. They they were saved during the the seventies during the the Jesus movement. They were miraculously saved out of a dead church, 
where they learned about Jesus, but they never knew him. Well, they came to him. They know him. They, they met him. They had an encounter with him, and uh, they, they still love him dearly. They really do. But the problem with, with this couple is that nothing ever measures up. You know, they, they remember back to that time in the 70s how, how good it was. The, they, they talk about how, how good the music was, these, these praise choruses that we sang. You know, they just drew us so close to the Lord. And... <laughs> but now, now nothing ever measures up. They go to churches and either the, either the songs are too old or they're too new. You know, they, they've got this narrow window and it, it just never measures up. They, they've lived in the same city for, I'm not sure, I think about 15 or 20 years and they still haven't found a church that they feel good in. They still haven't found a church that measures up. You know, the, the preaching doesn't match their expectations. And, uh, you know, I, I would just love them I, I would love to see them maybe just put the past behind them and press on and find a church where they can fellowship with their, their fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord and, and enjoy the Lord with them, you know. But they don't. We can't rest on our laurels, our, our past achievements. You know, it doesn't do much good today if I had these great experiences with the Lord in the past if I'm not walking with him today if I'm living for myself you know I, I I can't brag about how great my prayer life used to be if I'm not approaching the Lord in prayer every day Paul says I'm straining forward to what lies ahead I'm pressing on towards this goal this goal of Jesus this is very forward looking I've heard that it's impossible to drive by looking in the rearview mirror. And, you know, we also can't drive by focusing on what's in the car. We can't let past experiences slow us down or stop us on on this, this journey that we're on. We can't be paralyzed by past experiences, but we are many times. We feel like, well, if it was bad then, it's going to be bad now. We feel like, well, why should things be better? Why would they go differently? You know, if if I messed up then, I'm going to mess up again. You know, if if I was hurt then, I'm going to be hurt again. And again, that can be, that can stop us, that can paralyze us. You know, uh, for me, I find it useful if I look back on previous mistakes or, or even things I did right but didn't work out, whatever, and learn from those experiences. You know, I think that's why God gives us those experiences. We, we should never waste any experience that the Lord lets us go through. We learn from our mistakes. We benefit from our failures. You know, what, what else can keep us from focusing on what's ahead? Uh, we can be distracted by be distracted by things in the present. Um, you know, back to the, the car analogy. You know what I hate? I hate watching a movie where there's a scene 
where the, the people are in the car and the person is driving the car and he's, he's you know, looking at the passengers or distracted or whatever. You just feel like, in, in fact, I say, I say it out loud. Keep your eye on the road. And Chris rolls her eyes. That I, you know, I'm talking to the TV. You know, let's, let's not be guilty of uh, spiritual distracted driving. Let's keep our eyes on the road. Let's let's keep our eyes looking forward. You know, what, where do we want to go? What what lies ahead? What what's the prize? It, it's Christ, the upward call of God in Jesus Christ, being with Him, knowing Him, seeing Him as He is one day. Well, finally, Paul brings in the maturity required of our relationships with each other. So let's stay on the road together. So what would we say? Paul says, I'm not there yet, but I'm on the right road. Let's stay on the right road together. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think differently, God will reveal that also to you. Now, in using this word us, he's saying, you know, we're in this together. We're on this road together. Those of us who are mature. Now, earlier he said he hasn't reached perfection. Now he's saying those of us who are mature. You know, I think what we can draw from that is he's saying that those of us who are striving to do this are the mature ones. We're not fully mature yet, but we, we will be. He's defining maturity as doing what he's advocating, pressing on for what lies, be, lies ahead, striving for the upward call. Uh, together. Let's have unity. Let's be of one mind. Think like mature people, he's saying. And I I think that he says something very important here. If in anything you think differently, God will reveal it to you. He's talking about holding different opinions on things. He's not... He's certainly not talking about having differing opinions on weighty matters such as the, the gospel. You know, he considers people who disagree on the gospel to be enemies of the Christ of the cross. You know, he says, if anybody brings another gospel, let him, let him be accursed. So he's certainly not talking about that. Nor is he talking about sin or, or disobedience. You know, he, he has some pretty harsh things to say about people who are actively living in sin living unrepentant lives. But what he's doing is he's acknowledging that there will be differences in opinions on some things. And he's saying, let's deal with these areas of disagreement as mature people. And he's willing to leave the matter to to God. You know, God will reveal it, he says, in due time. Leave it to him. We need to seek unity you know, he's, he's acknowledging that unity is not the same as uniformity. Alistair Begg says that in all kinds of points, people do think differently. In fact, he, he did a sermon on this, this one verse here, verse 15. Uh, in, you know, in our church, we take the Bible seriously, and that's, that's one of our strong points. That's a huge strong point. That's one of our... Big strengths. We know that God's word is powerful. We know that God's word gives us what we need to come to salvation. We know 
from God's word, how, how to live the, the Christian life, you know, it's sufficient for those things. You know, Christian books are okay insofar as, as they line up with what we read in the Bible. But they reflect the varied views of imperfect men and women. You know, we, we know that the baseline is our Bible. Anything we, we read, we need to line it up measure it against the Bible. Anything I ever say, I want you to do that too. Um, many of us have, have dedicated our, our lives to knowing the, the Bible, God's word. Well, Beg, speaking on this, this uh, verse 15, he, he speaks of his own church. He says that the danger of this kind of congregation is not so much the danger of theological vagueness or an approach to fellowship based on the lowest common denominator. But when people begin to take doctrine seriously, there's a tendency that develops in us to become particular and become rigid and demand too much of others, sometimes of ourselves, and at the same time to seek to make essential what is actually non-essential. When you say this, the, the people who fit this rigid particularism and exclusivism immediately get their hackles up. We might have some hackles up right now. But in his, in his sermon, he examines uh, those things which are essential, those things which are, are not essential. And uh, he, he bases his sermon in part by a, a book by uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's called What is an Evangelical? I, I have that book in my library. And Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, talks about the schism that occurs among fellow believers. He he gives us the meaning of this word schism. People who were agreed about the centralities of the faith dividing and separating from one another over matters that were not essential to salvation, not absolutely vital. He says this is always one of the dangers afflicting us as evangelicals. We can be so rigid, so overstrict, and so narrow that we become guilty of schism. So that absolutely stands in contrast with unity in the church. You know, he, he says that, you know, when we say something's non-essential or a secondary issue, you know, we're not saying it's not important. We're not saying it's irrelevant. But we're affirming that a particular perspective of these things is not a necessity in relationship with salvation. He says we need to be able to discuss these things as brothers and sisters equally committed to what the Bible says about God, Christ, humanity, and the fall and such rather than being at war with one another, feeling that our view must inevitably and necessarily triumph over another view because we realize that we see through a glass darkly. We see through a glass darkly. I pulled out that Martin Lloyd-Jones book and he lists several non-essential things. First, he lists election and predestination. Now, I have my own strong views on, on this. Here's what he says. He says, I'm a Calvinist. I believe in election and predestination, but I would not dream of putting it under the head of essential. I put it under the heading of non-essential. 
You are not saved by your precise understanding of how this great salvation comes to you. What you must be clear about is that you are lost and damned, hopeless and helpless, and that nothing can save you but the grace of God and Jesus Christ and only him crucified, bearing the punishment of your sins, dying, rising again, ascending, ascended, sending the spirit, regeneration. These are the essentials, he says. But he says, I will not separate from a man who cannot accept and believe the doctrines of election and predestination and is Armenian. As long as he tells me we are all saved by grace and as long as the Calvinist agrees, as he must, that God calls everyone or man everywhere to repentance, as long as both are prepared to agree about these things, I say we must not break fellowship. So he says, I put election into the category of non-essentials. He lists some other things, age and mode of baptism. He, he says that he's been reading books about that subject for 40 years, and he says, he says I know less now than I did when I started. Uh, church polity, the, the structure of church leadership, uh, the way of sanctification, you know, how God's grace works in our, our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. Uh, prophetic interpretation, here we go. When Jesus is coming, before the millennium, after, during, you know, before, during, or after the great tribulation, he says we must not divide on a question of prophetic interpretation. Pre, post, amillennialist, and so on. Not one of them can be proved, so we must not put them into the category of essentials. You have your views, hold them. Let's discuss them together. Let us reason together out of the scriptures. But if we divide on these matters, I maintain that we are guilty of schism. We are putting into the category of essentials what is non-essential. My last quote from him is, uh, he says, we must be very careful to draw this distinction between essentials and non-essentials, lest we become guilty of schism and begin to rend the body of Christ. This is absolutely a matter of unity versus division. It's absolutely a matter of oneness versus schism. Our unity needs to be in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we're, we're on this, this road together, this, this narrow road. This road is narrow because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And, uh, you know, we have this, this vote today. This, this is the argument against keeping that in the statement of faith. It's the argument for removing the millennial view from our statement of faith. Uh, we need to be mature. We, we must not bicker on this, this road as we uh, travel together. You know, we, we must not be contentious. Uh, we must not try to push each other off the road over non-essentials. You know, when our, when our daughter was so adamant about raspberries versus crackers, we didn't punish her. 
We didn't shun her. We didn't, we didn't refuse to allow her to be a member of our family because she wasn't one of us. Why, why would we do that? If anyone thinks differently about something, we can discuss the matter. We can, we can disagree without being disagreeable. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. We can be comfortable trusting in the Lord to reveal the truth in due time. We can be comfortable knowing that, that we see things darkly now. But these things will be revealed in due time. We can trust the Lord with that. We need to trust the Lord with our brothers and sisters who disagree with us on on secondary issues. It's not up to us. Let's let's not refuse to to travel with with a brother or sister who is saved by grace through faith in our, our Lord Jesus over a secondary issue. Let's, let's be mature, Paul is saying. Let's, let's hold true to what we've attained. Let's be gospel people. Let's, let's stay our course. Let's strive forward. Let's look ahead at that prize. Let's, let's seek to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's what's important. Let's, let's be gospel people. So we're, we're on this road because of this finished work of Christ on the cross. You know, we, we remain on it on the same basis. Uh, you know, it's, it's his will that we mature and grow. You know, we haven't arrived yet, not one of us. The perfect won't come till we're in the presence of the Lord. In the meantime, let's, let's press forward towards maturity. Let's, let's enjoy the, the journey together. Let's not bicker let's let's love each other let's love god let's love each other in in unity and in, in humility let's pray um, lord um, father in, in the name of of jesus christ uh, we, we thank you for the cross we thank you for the shed blood the redemption that we have in in jesus Thank you, Lord, for for the resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that we are beneficiaries of that resurrection. That's our hope. That's our power, the the living Christ, that we strive for that prize. Lord, that everything else that's of us, of our flesh, is is rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of, of knowing you. Lord, forgive us of our our destructive pride. Make us one, Lord. Let us uh, clothe ourselves in in humility. Lord, that we would not elevate ourselves, but we would recognize that yours is the power and and the glory. Lord, that we would praise you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.